Hi everyone, welcome to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding the light after perinatal trauma. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, birth trauma survivor turned podcast host. Today we are joined by Rebecca Cook. In 2021, Becca became pregnant with her second pregnancy. By November, she was incredibly ill with COVID, whooping cough, and pneumonia all at the same time. One night, in the wee hours of the morning, her husband Thomas woke up to Becca agonal breathing. Tune in to find out what that is and to hear more about her story. Hi, Becca. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Let's start with an introduction about yourself and your family. I'm Rebecca. I have a husband named Thomas. We live in the Atlanta area in Georgia. Um, It's just us right now. Hopefully, trying to conceive again soon. I'm a physical therapist assistant. I work an outpatient. Uh, my husband is in IT. And mm-hmm. that's about it. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and jump into your birth story. I guess going back to the beginning, we had started trying to conceive and then we weren't preventing. So not actually like kind of getting the timing right. So I started using like ovulation testing. And then after that, we got pregnant after about three months. So I got pregnant with Walker in uh, July of 2021. And that pregnancy, I really, and we'll get to why later. I really don't remember a lot about the pregnancy. I had a very large fibroid uh, from the beginning uh, when I've, first went for my first first ultrasound, it was 10 centimeters and just continued to grow. Um, And because of that, I was in a lot of pain. Wow. I don't remember being in pain, but uh, my husband Mm -hmm. says that I was in constant pain. It was like, uh, like sharp shooting pains in my belly. It was, my belly was heavy. Um, Other than that, my pregnancy, I really don't remember ever having any other issues other than I, you know, I've, you know, your normal pregnancy, nausea, things like that, craved pickles. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't really remember any other issues. Um, it was, you know, a pretty, I think I also had maybe like some high blood pressure, but, you know, nothing really extravagant um, other than the fibroid. So. Mm-hmm. so in about October, me and my husband both caught COVID and we developed pneumonia. I had also had whooping cough. So I had whooping cough, pneumonia, and COVID all at the same time. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. And we, we had that for probably about almost a month. Um, we were still having fevers. It was pretty rough. Um, but I had started to get better. I had gotten not completely over it. I was still kind of dealing with a little bit of the pneumonia. Um, my husband says that I was, um, starting to be in a lot more pain. Um, I could barely stand up straight. I, I couldn't sleep. I had to sit like I, I had pillows on the back of the bed, like I was sleeping sitting mm-hmm. up. So I couldn't lay flat. I couldn't lay on my side. Um, and one night after I had gone to the store, he was still sick. So I was still taking care of him. During the night, uh, my husband said he woke up. It, so it was actually more the next morning, like 4.30 a.m., Mm-hmm. He said that I was making like a moaning sound. 
I later learned that that's agonal breathing. So it's like a reflex that when your body isn't getting enough oxygen, when your brain's not getting oxygen, it triggers this reflex to make you breathe. So that's the noise that I was making. Woke him up. And when he turned the light on, I had like a blank stare and he knew something was wrong. So he, he didn't know what to do. So he called 911. They came and got me, took me to the hospital. Um, he came, they told him to wait like 30 minutes, probably to compose himself before he tried to drive. So he met them at the hospital, called uh, his mom. And at this point, we had no idea what was going on. Um, I had coded again in in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Oh, my goodness. When I got to the hospital, um, Walker's heart rate had already slowed to, I believe, like right around 100. It might have been below 100 at that point. But they basically told my husband, if I survived, that I would need a heart transplant. Because at this point, they didn't know what happened. They just knew I was and that I mm-hmm. coded. Um, so they were telling him that I would need a heart transplant. I would need to be on ECMO for several weeks at the least. And they kind of gave him the decision, you know, we can put all of our effort into her or we can kind of try to save the baby too. And he he knew at that point that he wasn't going to make it. So he he told him, you know, do whatever you have to do to save her. So they put, I coded again. I think I coded three times in six hours, once in the ambulance, once again in the emergency room, in the trauma room. And again, when they took me to the ICU. Wow. Um, the last time I coded, my husband was actually in the room. He was standing next to the bed. He said he called his mom. And as they were like, he said the room filled up with about 20 people. And as they were trying to, you know, they were working on me. Um, he was on the phone with his mom and he said, this is it. He like, he really believed that I was going to die. Mm-hmm. They got me on the ECMO. I was on that and I was on a ventilator. I had a NG tube in my nose. They still weren't sure what happened. Um, I also had the DIC, the clotting. I had um, anoxia, which I later found out caused some vision loss in my right eye. I have a blind spot in my right eye that they believe from me mm-hmm. being without oxygen. Um, they really don't know how long I was without oxygen. So I was on the ECMO, on the ventilator, and all of that until the next night when my heart started working on its own again. So I was really on ECMO for about a day, maybe a day and a half. That night after my husband went home, because they they were allowing him to come in and visit. But after he went home, I think during the night when they took me off of the ECMO, they found out that it was in the wrong artery in my leg. Mm -hmm. I guess just in the emergency situation of it, it had been placed in the wrong artery. So it was in my femoral artery, but it was in a different femoral. So not the correct one. I can't remember which one it is. When they took the ECMO out, it destroyed the artery. So I think, and this is just what I deduced from my hospital notes that I read. Um, So I think that they had to do like an emergency bypass, a femoral bypass. 
So they put in a, a piece of a, a cow artery, a bovine artery in my left groin. So um, I came off the ventilator and then I stayed. They took me to the CCU, the critical care unit. I was there mm-hmm. four days. And I, so I remember this conversation, but I didn't realize until later that it actually happened. I remember it as a dream. A lot of things that happened Mm -hmm. this time, I remember as a dream. Like, oh, yeah, Yeah. I remember that dream, but it it was actually, it actually happened. So um, I think maybe being, because I was on sedation, I think maybe effects of being on sedation, I still wasn't completely there. I was awake, but I didn't really know what was going on. I remember my OB, who is my angel. I remember standing at the foot of my bed and talking to me and my husband and his mom, basically telling us the baby's gone. And then kind of talking about options. So at that point, I had not started labor yet. Um, This was on... I think a Wednesday. So the, my AFE happened on Monday morning and this was on Wednesday. She, you know, her and my husband kind of had this conversation, like, you know, we can see what happens. And if nothing happens through the weekend on Tuesday, they had scheduled a C-section. Um, or I guess at that point it was just, you know, cause because Walker was gone. So I, I don't know if it would be classified as C-section, but basically in an abdominal surgery to take the baby out and possibly a hysterectomy. Yeah, that's a great question of if that would still be classified as a C-section. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I guess technically it is. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. So that was the plan. So they were going to wait, you know, through the weekend to see what happened. Um, at this mm-hmm. point, I was, I had just turned 20 weeks. Um, so Friday afternoon, and I don't, I don't remember any of my labor at all. I don't, I don't remember the pain. I don't remember the epidural. I don't remember giving birth. I I don't remember any of it, um, which I guess is a blessing. I really don't, I really don't know how I feel about it. I don't, I don't know if that's something that I want to remember, but also Mm -hmm. like, I. I kind of do. I agree. I I don't remember even going to the hospital, and so it feels weird to not remember giving birth to my daughter, yeah. whether that was through a surgery or a vaginal delivery. Yeah, I don't remember Friday and Saturday at all. Um, yeah. So Friday is when I went into labor, and at that point, um, they knew that it would take a while. And so they offered for my husband to stay the night with me. So he stayed with me in the room in the CCU. I labored all night. I had the epidural and gave birth to Walker at 9.01 a.m. on Sunday, November 20th. Um, He was five ounces and I believe 13 inches long. What I do remember is afterward, and I don't know how long afterward, um, the bereavement nurse... And our, our Mm -hmm. hospital, like the, this hospital system has great, uh, bereavement care, Mm -hmm. uh, natal loss bereavement care. So they have an actual dedicated program. It's called Heartstrings. I believe that's what it's called. 
anyway, so they had a bereavement nurse who takes takes the baby, prepares the baby, you know, does like uh, footprint and handprint keepsakes. They do um, memory boxes. So that's really nice. And they, it's free. They took care of cremation. Like they, they took care of everything. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really good. We got really lucky there. Because um, I've heard a lot of horror stories of people having to to figure out things like that afterward. I, I, I wasn't even mentally present. I don't even know what I would have done. Um, but one of the only memories I have, I have two memories of that day. One is the bereavement nurse asking me what his name is. And... We had, we had talked about names that we liked, but um, we hadn't really decided on anything. And I I thought I had talked to my husband about this name, but he says we didn't talk about it. And so when she asked me what his name is, immediately I said, Walker Lee. Um, I don't know where it came from, but that's his name. Interesting. <laughs> the other memory I have is of, so after the birth, um, my placenta did not come out and she tried for about 30 minutes my OB tried Mm -hmm. for about 30 minutes to she like periodically would tug to see if it would release and it wouldn't release so I had to have a DNC a vacuum DNC to get the rest of the placenta out and so the other memory I have is going into the OR and then putting the mask over my face um, to have the DNC wow and then after that so I I gave birth in the CCU, um, in the critical care unit. Um, after that night, they moved me to the step-down unit to a normal room because I was off of mm-hmm. all the, I was still on a heart monitor because my heart rate was very high, um, mm-hmm. but I wasn't on any more, you know, no NG tube or anything. I was eating solids. Um, so I stayed in the step-down for about a week. They couldn't figure out why my heart rate was so high. My resting heart rate was like in the 120s, 130s. And whenever I moved, it would just, it would shoot up to, you know, almost 200. Yeah. So I stayed in the step down unit for about a week after that. Spent Thanksgiving in the step down room. Um, Basically just, I guess, so they could monitor my blood. Like they, they took blood every day to, you know, vitals and everything, I guess, just to, to monitor. Cause they, I wasn't really getting a lot of medications. I don't think I was getting mm-hmm. a lot of um, like magnesium and fluids. But um, at that point, I don't really, I don't really remember getting like needing much, which is incredible because the week before I was on ECMO. Yeah. I do remember I was, uh, I still had the pneumonia and trying to cough was the worst pain of my life. Well, I'm sure. Because, yeah, because when I, uh, when they were doing CPR, when the paramedics, they put me on the Lucas machine. I forget what Lucas stands for, but it's the, it's a machine that does CPR. And when they were doing that, it broke some of my left ribs. And so I had all this junk in my lungs from the Mm -hmm. COVID and the pneumonia. And so coughing was horrible. So I had, I had a lot of like respiratory therapy, um, 
yeah, after that, I went home. So it was almost two full complete weeks from the event to when I went home. I went home on a Sunday, the Sunday night after Thanksgiving. Wow. And then about a week later, we got the call from the funeral home to come and pick up his ashes. Wow. That is an immense amount of events to go through in a little over a month between getting whooping cough, pneumonia, COVID, coding, being on ECMO, your husband potentially saying you need a heart transplant, et cetera, and then having walk and then waking up. Well, you were kind of awake, mm-hmm. kind of waking up, having walker, and then trying to go back home. And, you know, and I think that that's such an interesting, such an interesting thought of how we're just supposed to return to life as normal. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what those early days were like? I was bleeding a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say probably the next over a month, probably a month and a half, I, I probably should have been admitted back to the hospital I was losing a lot of blood Mm -hmm. um they so at this point we had not known they had not told us that it was an amniotic embolism they Mm -hmm. they were like it's just a fluke we don't know like it could have been this it could have been the COVID you know they we didn't really have any answers as to what happened so I just Mm -hmm. the, the especially those first few weeks like I was pregnant and then I woke up in the hospital and I wasn't and like there there wasn't that connection for me as like I didn't have time to um make the connection or like I I, and especially because I didn't have memories of anything like it, Mm -hmm. it there was like somebody snapped and it was different um so I guess especially those first few weeks was just trying to come to terms with everything, not just, so not just losing Walker, but also my trauma and my physical trauma, um, my husband's trauma. Um, he describes it as he, like he experienced the loss of me and Walker but mm-hmm. obviously for him, it was more um, more prevalent because of what happened to me. But the way the way it happened to me, I really only experienced losing Walker. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what more more of what I focused on was trying okay. to come to terms with that. I guess all of the other physical stuff that was going on with me was just like, okay, this is just the way I am now. I don't know, It, I guess my brain could only focus on one thing, and that was Walker. I was still having the heart rate issue. Um, they mm-hmm. had tried to get me to go to a rehab facility, but um, like I said earlier, I'm a therapist, and I refused to do that. So I, <laughs> I said, nope, I'm going home. So I, I was like, I can do this. I help, I help people do this every day. I can do this. So, mm-hmm. so I went home. Do you ever miss that person you were kind of, so to speak, prior to losing Walker and having your AFE? 
maybe. I maybe miss the... Uh, I miss being able to not think about the worst thing that's ever happened. I've, like... If, if you ask anybody, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to someone, you know, a lot of people are probably going to say losing my child or my child dying before yeah. me or having to bury my child. So I have lived through the worst thing that could ever happen to some people. I miss not having that. Like bef before this, nothing had ever happened to me. So, you know, as far as like, having an interesting story. I didn't have anything like that. Um, so I, I feel like I, I miss more mm -hmm. of that. Just, I guess, blissful ignorance. That's a great way to put it. I a hundred percent agree yeah. with that of it's so mine. And I knew things could happen during, I knew things could happen during delivery and, during pregnancy, things do not always go to plan, but to actually go through this has completely changed my perspective mm -hmm. on life, and and I didn't even experience everything you experienced. Yeah, I guess at that point, I did have an early miscarriage before Walker. Uh, I lost a, my first pregnancy before five weeks, so I, I barely even knew I was wow. pregnant. So I guess at that point, that was the worst thing that happened. But even then, even then I was like, you know, I dusted off my, you know, dusted off and was like, okay, we can do this again. Like it, it didn't affect me as deeply as this has. I mean, obviously there are two very different situations. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know that I miss me as a person, but I miss mm -hmm. not having this as part of my story. That completely makes sense. It's such a life altering situation. And often, you know, we're in the same support group being AFE sisters and not often, but I do see posts about when will I get my old life back? And I'm like, I'm sorry, honey, yeah. it's gone. You're never, you can't, you can't go to the brink of death, whatever, your story looks like, whether you coded multiple times or in your case, unfortunately, lost your baby, you can't go to the brink of death, come back and be the same person. I don't, I personally do not think that that is possible. Can't be the same person after someone has looked you in the eye and said, you should not be here. That's a really great point. I, you know, I've Becca, I, I literally just got chills because I've never thought of it in that regard. I've, I very vividly, I don't have a whole lot of vivid memories from when I was in the hospital, but I have a very, the very vivid memory of my CT surgeon coming in and saying, you are a miracle. You should not be here. And I'm like, wait a minute. What does that even mean? Well, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And I don't know that I had the thought of what am I doing here, but it was just this overwhelming sense of confusion of all of these just facts flying at me. And I'm like, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying to me. Yeah. 
And it, it really hit me. Um, so one of my follow-up visits with my OB, she had a student and <laughs> hearing her retell my story to this student and hearing it and knowing it's about me was such a surreal experience. Mm -hmm. And then her looking at her student and saying, the only way to diagnose AFE is on autopsy. I was wow. like, uh, like it, it was just like it, it, it feels like something sitting on your chest when you hear something like that. Absolutely. I, I did not have the same exact experience, but I had an experience where, um, my PCP, they, it's a student attending program. So they have residents all the time and through the door, I overheard my doctor explaining to a resident what happened to me. And even that of, even that of like hearing everything. And he is just going through the facts of, you know, the surgeries, how I'm doing now, where I am in my recovery, etc. And it's very factual, but even that is just like mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way, but I think sometimes I don't give myself enough credit for how far, or I don't give myself enough credit for the things that I've been through in the last three years. And I, even today when I was at physical therapy, I'm, I'm thinking like, I've got this, this is fine. Like I can do this. And my body is just like, nope, <laughs> like hard no. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's such a frustrating feeling, feeling like you want to do all these things and your body can't always keep up, so to speak. I get that a lot. So like I said, I'm in an outpatient clinic. So I am helping people recover from injury or surgery. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of times when I'm, I want my patient to do a certain thing. So the, the bypass surgery, um, left my leg very weak. And mm -hmm. we've, we've talked about this. We, we had kind of the same, kind of the same experience, I think, uh, but not I exactly. Yeah. So I have this huge scar on my, on my groin and I don't have sensation in half of my leg for the first probably three or four months. I couldn't even move my left leg. Mm -hmm. Um, so like when I'm, when I'm at the clinic and I want a patient to do something, <laughs> with their left leg, I'm like, okay, this is what I want you to do, but I can't do it to show you. So good it, luck. It, yeah. <laughs> so you try it and I'll tell you if you're doing it right, but I can't show it to you because my left leg doesn't work. Just going down my stairs in my house. I can't, um, I can't go down the stairs normally. I can go up pretty good, which took a while. Um, but I, I, I got to where I'm strong enough to go up normally, but going down, I have to go one step at a time. Wow. Um, I'm working on it though. I'm, I'm my, my boss is my PT. So. <laughs> at least you've got a great PT, right? Yeah. It, it's <laughs> getting stronger. I, I notice it's getting stronger. I still don't have um, the sensation, but it'll, it's getting there. When I feel like in my case, like I had the double whammy of, well, I still had ECMO in my left leg, but I have right-sided weakness from the stroke. Yeah. And so in my case, that has been what I've really struggled to overcome. And even today, I posted on Instagram about how I was focusing on trying to build up that leg. And sometimes it just doesn't want 
it just doesn't want to participate. I feel like sometimes medical personnel don't give people who have been through medical complexities enough credit. Like I am, I promise you, I'm trying really hard and yeah. Yeah. I get that. Especially in the field that I'm in, I I feel Mm -hmm. like I've witnessed that, you know, even an outpatient, like when someone is, when we're seeing someone for their shoulder, but their back hurts. Mm-hmm. Well, you should be able to do this because we're only seeing you for your shoulder. Well, I can't do it because my back hurts like that. That kind of mm. treating the whole person instead of just the body part. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump back to uh, what were those early days postpartum like? Okay, so as I mentioned, I was I was bleeding a lot. Um, and then because of the heart rate... Um, also with the bleeding, I, I never passed out, but, um, I was wearing diapers. So I was wearing, I had to wear Depends, um, just because it, it was just nonstop. Uh, I don't want to get into too much gory detail, but the biggest clots I've ever seen, like fist size. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. So yeah, so that along with my high heart rate, I was just, and I was basically bedridden, um, just to get up, to go to the bathroom, I would have to just sit on the toilet for several minutes until I recovered so I could go back to the bed. About three weeks after I came home, I had Mm -hmm. a doctor's appointment at the hematologist and I I drove myself because they Mm -hmm. told me I couldn't have a visitor. So my husband didn't go with me, which was very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Somehow I got there. Um, From the car to the building, walking from the car to the building, I had to sit on a bench and recover. Walking from the bench to the elevator, I could barely stay in the elevator long enough to to get to the doctor's office. Once I got to the, to the doctor's office, I had to sit and recover again, like sitting down three or four times just to get into my doctor's office. It was really bad. So they called me back because mm-hmm. I guess I looked terrible. Um, I was very pale cause I was losing blood. Um, and yeah. I, once they called me back, they were going to, you know, they were taking my vital signs. They were going to take some blood and I just started throwing up. And I felt like I was going to pass out. So they took my blood really quickly, had me lay down, and my hemoglobin was six. And for reference, uh, it should be at least 11 at the very lowest. 12 to 15 is optimal. Um, So I was walking around with a hemoglobin of less than half of normal. Mm -hmm. Um. So I immediately had to get a blood transfusion. I got two mm-hmm. two bags of blood that afternoon. So after that, I felt better, but I was still bleeding. Um, so I trying to remember. They were. I was still going to monitor the fibroid. At mm-hmm. that point, the fibroid 
had shrunk a little, so they believed it was dying, which we found out later it did. Um, I was diagnosed with POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had to wear a heart monitor, and then I got diagnosed with POTS. So they put me on a beta blocker to control my heart rate. So I've been on that since then and it's been working fine. So I went from having a resting heart rate in the one twenties, one thirties to now my heart rate is resting at sixties and seventies. So that got better. Um, I would say the bleeding finally stopped maybe in April. So from November to April, Wow. November to April. Yeah. Wow. Um, they believed it was because one, the fibroid, mm-hmm. two, the wound left by the placenta, mm-hmm. uh, and three, um, just my my blood was not where it needed to be. Um, I had to take baby aspirin because I had a DVT in my leg. Mm-hmm. Was that from all of this? From, like, being on yeah, ECMO and Yeah, everything. I had a DVT in the hospital. Wow. Um, so, uh, because of that, I was taking baby aspirin, which in turn made my blood even thinner, which made it come out more, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's, it's a cycle. But they were afraid for me to come off of the aspirin because of the DVT. So, I had to stay on it until mm-hmm. I'm still on it, actually. So, but eventually the, the bleeding stopped. Um So I was going for regular ultrasounds to look at the fibroid and it was shrinking. So they decided, okay, it's probably dying. So it's like, (laughs) so like your fist Uh is your uterus. So it was kind of to the right and on the outside. Um, My OB described it as a Shrek. Shrek? So you know how, yeah, you know how his little ears Uh come out of his head? So the fibroid was his right Holy ear. Holy moly. I don't know why she described it as that, but. That <laughs> that's so funny. So that stuck in my head because she described my uterus as uh, Shrek's head. So, yeah. So I, I'm i really not good at uh, descriptions. But anyway, so it once it died, it actually pushed itself from the outside of my uterus to the inside. How does that happen? I don't know, but it did. So I was referred to a specialist, a a GYN surgeon in Atlanta. um, And he determined that it definitely did. They called it abort. It aborted itself into the uterine cavity and I would need surgery. So about August of 2022 Mm -hmm. um, is when I had the surgery to have the fibroid taken out. So I had that, the large one that they believe caused all the problems. And then I had two smaller ones. Um, One of them was actually attached to my colon. So they had to detach it and then remove it. So um, I know you asked about the early weeks. I'm I'm in August now, but (laughs) Nothing else really happened. I mean, I I went back Mm -hmm. to work in April, um, probably like a week after I stopped bleeding. Seems like now it's your turn to catch a break. Yeah. Um, 
I, I've described it to someone else as, you know, how like when you're in a pool or when you're in the water and it's like right up to right up under your nose and you have to struggle to keep your head above mm. just so you can breathe. It's like I, I can take a breath, but not very long. And then the yeah. water is right back there. Wow. Um, I, I quit the job that I had. So I quit the, I was working in a nursing home rehab, quit that job. Mm -hmm. I could, I I absolutely could not do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Mentally, physically, it was destroying my body. Wow. Um, I was exhausted. I was coming home, just mentally checked out. I couldn't do it anymore. I, I had to have a change. So after my surgery, I was off for six weeks from work. So during that time, Mm -hmm. I started applying to jobs and that's where I got this job. So this job is actually, it's an outpatient clinic. You were in a rehab Mm -hmm. once, right? A lot of lifting people, pushing wheelchairs, you know, a a lot of Mm. physical labor. Hands-on. A lot of hands-on. A lot of people who are physically dependent. So, um, I, I was very weak. I just couldn't do it. Um, so I got this job in this outpatient clinic and it's not even, it's less than five minutes from my house. There's Mm -hmm. really no, um, physical demand. Um, mentally it's, it's busy and it has its own stresses, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like I, I come home and work is at work. I don't feel like I bring mm-hmm. my work home with me because this company that I work for believes very strongly in work-life balance and they invest a lot into their employees. So I feel um, very, I feel very supported by them. Plus my mm-hmm. boss has known my story from the beginning, whereas I feel like with my last job, they expected me to be the person I was before, and I couldn't wow. live up to those expectations. And so I came into this job with me telling them what my expectations were. You know, this is my story. This is what happened to me. This is what I can do. You know, can I work here? Is, is that Okay. And they were, they were very accepting of that. So That's I really appreciate that. You know, I've had therapists say, oh, we'll just push through. And I'm like, okay, but you don't live my life. You don't walk in my shoes. I think that's bad advice, but that's my opinion. Yeah. I do an hour of PT every week. So I know, I know how you feel. Um, I can't relate to someone who had a rotator cuff repair because I've never been through that. Mm -hmm. I don't have shoulder pain, but I can relate to someone who Mm -hmm. has poor balance, who has leg weakness, who has pain, who has been pregnant or, you know, like has cardiac issues. Like I can relate to those people. So that is a lot of what I see. I, I get put with a lot of people who like I, especially the older generation. Um, I get a lot of geriatric patients, Mm -hmm. which is funny because I can relate to them the most. (laughs) 
That is funny. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in today. We kindly ask you to head over to your favorite podcasting platform to leave us a review. It really helps with searchability and finding different podcasts. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, and you've been listening to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding light after perinatal trauma. Bye-bye.